1: This is your preparation station encouraging hosts and empowering topics to equip you along the journey preparedness grounded in truth now on with the show
0: Your preparation station with Donna Miller is on the air Tune in for insight and encouragement for living a more sustainable back-to-basics lifestyle No matter where you've come from or what the future may hold we hope each episode will encourage you with topics guests and stories that inspire your journey towards self-sufficiency and now the hostess of your preparation station donna miller
2: welcome to another episode of your preparation station i'm your host donna miller i'm really glad to be with you again we've had a little bit of a break and um, we're really excited for the things that 2018 has in store. This year, we're going to be having several guests that are contributing authors for Prepare Magazine. And that way you can get to know them a little bit more intimately and just kind of get, I guess, a voice and a tone behind their writing. Uh, today, Mark Linderman is a brand new guest. He's also a brand new contributor for uh, Prepare Magazine. His credentials are really impressive, and I think you guys are going to have a good time getting to know him. I'm excited because this is uh, a good time for me to also get to know him better. He is a certified communicator of public health, and Mark is the preparedness coordinator for a local health department, which he served at for over 18 years. He's also an instructor for the Fairbanks School of Public Health at Indiana University teaching public health preparedness. He also instructs courses on natural disaster and crisis risk communications at Crown College and Ashland University and graphic design for Purdue University. He's obviously a jack-of-all-trades, which I think a lot of us are, (laughs) does a lot of different things that are important to focus on preparedness. Additionally, Mark is one of 50 professionals in the United States who is certified as a public health communicator and currently instructs crisis and emergency risk communications for the Centers for Disease Control, you may hear it as CDC, as well as Vantage Point Consulting based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, if you will look at a couple of the links that are on the show page, there are some ways that you can um, go to his YouTube channel, connect with him on Facebook and Twitter, and that way you can be a little bit more connected with our guest here, Mark Linderman. So without further ado, I'm going to bring him on.
3: Hi, Donna. I appreciate you having me on.
2: Great to have you with us, Mark, and we're looking forward to talking about a lot of great things during this half hour. Public health preparedness and, of course, your Facebook and, and how you connect with people there and so much more government preparedness and things like that. First, I kind of want to ask, you know, everybody had their aha moment, uh-huh. you know, that said, uh, I think I need to look at things a little differently. <laughs> what what was it
3: for you? Well, I'm one of those people where you know, 9-11 dramatically affected me, I know it affected a lot of people, especially the the people who were involved in that. But you, it's one of those things, you know, I will I always remember where I am or where I was and, and how I was feeling. And mm-hmm. uh, just the notion that to see America attacked, uh, especially in that fashion, has always changed me ever since. And then kind of fast forward a little bit, the anthrax attacks in 2001, it really kind of got my my eyes open, and that's when public health preparedness really started to be a big thing. And at the time, my predecessor kind of managed a whole program. But it really was the H1N1 pandemic uh, that really gave me that aha moment. As a first responder for public health, I had had the H1N1 pandemic vaccine, but my family had not. And it amazed me that something as small as a virus could start in Mexico City, and work it way, work its way into my living room, into my own home, and affect my entire family, but me, in a matter of two months. And so, I hate to say that, you know, my my family getting sick was was really the instigator of my love for public health preparedness. But that was my aha moment. My background is in film production. Uh, I actually went to seminary for for a year uh, in Louisville, and this was what I felt was my calling. After that, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so. I have dedicated myself since then to getting all the training I could, doing as much work as I could in public health preparedness, and and not just trying to make a name for myself, but actually make a name for preparedness uh, on a community level, in my community and elsewhere. Right,
2: right. Well, I mean, it seems like until recently, public health preparedness was a, such a non-topic. I mean, Okay, in, this, in the 50s and 60s, you had your bomb shelter, but that was it. That's a totally different thing, you know. But as far as like, wow, we could have any variety of issues to face as a community or a country or, or a neighbor could have something happen that affects us. It's relatively new. So whatever is the catalyst for getting into it, either you're going to stick your head in the sand and say there's nothing going on or you pay attention and you've paid attention. And you're
3: bringing others into it. Well, I think a lot of people have an interest in public health. I don't know if everybody exactly knows all the parameters of what public health entails. And that's one of the things I love to do. I love to educate people about public health. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people, whether they know it or not, are very interested in it. And whether that's restaurant inspections or disease outbreaks, people are interested in it because they have a dog in that fight. It it could affect Mm -hmm. them personally or someone else that they know personally but there's some sort of involvement that every one of us has within public health. And Mm so it's one of my missions in life just to help educate people and help them prepare for what we think it could be an unimaginable disease, like Ebola, for example.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, now, what would you describe as public health
3: preparedness? Well, public health preparedness, when it boils down to it, is trying to keep healthy and well during a disaster uh, or even Mm -hmm. before a disaster. Uh, I'll go back to the H1N1. I, I might refer to that a lot because that was a life-changing moment for me. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a flu virus or influenza, uh, especially a severe one, and how fast it can spread, and this is to even take seasonal flu. Right now we're at a, a flu season that the CDC has determined as severe. Uh, public health preparedness is a knowledge base knowing how to, for example, wash your hands. And and a lot of people might think that's silly, but a lot of people, if you go into any public restroom and watch people, a lot of (laughs) people don't wash their hands effectively. Um, Good cough etiquette, coughing into a handkerchief or into your elbow or into your hands. Um, Staying home if you're sick, getting the, the flu vaccine, whether it's a pandemic vaccine or the seasonal flu vaccine. Those are small measures of public health preparedness that we like to tell people about. Now, kind of enlarge that a little bit. Let's say there is a disease outbreak. What can families or, or individuals do uh, in their homes to help prepare themselves to um, practice social distancing? Uh, obviously, if we have a a large disease outbreak in this world, and you kind of factor in a 10 to 15 percent workforce reduction, a lot of people need to think about what that does to supermarkets. You know, will the supermarkets always be stocked? what happens to banks, what happens to utilities. And So some people might be stuck at home for a while without all the access that they're used to with those kind of organizations. So they may not have groceries up in front when they go to a grocery store. It might take longer for for delivery trucks to get there. And so Mm -hmm. how are families prepared with their own family preparedness kits and with enough food and water to sustain them? Uh, I know the federal government says three days, but in in all reality, for something like a pandemic, it could be several weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are the things that I love to talk about uh, to people and try to help educate them on.
2: Part of it sounds like you're trying to help people think a little bit further than outside the box for themselves. It's this pandemic may affect my family. Check. Got that. But in what ways? Because it's also affecting other entities. Um, I think a lot of people might go, well, I 'll just stay home or okay, well, that's great, but what happens when you do need to go get food exactly. or the gas stations are out of gas because they've they've temporarily halted you know uh, the the tankers mm-hmm. for right. whatever reason?
3: I think schools are also a huge thing that a lot of people don't think about that government agencies try to think about. Uh, I think last year was a good example because we had a pretty bad flu sweep through schools in the U.S., and we had some schools in the U.S. close. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when your school closes and your parents still have to work? Mm -hmm. Uh, What do those parents do? And you start to see this cascading domino effect in the world and in, in society, how one thing can actually lead to more problems. that A lot of people don't always think about and so, if a parent's not home, or if a parent's at home with their kid or their sick kid, uh, the school's closed. What happens to that parent's income? And not only that, what happens to the market when a workforce can't make it to work always? So it's not always sick people who aren't reporting to work. It's people who are afraid, people who need to take care of loved ones. And so we see this huge cascading, like I said, cascading domino effect of what can really happen in a severe disease outbreak.
2: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned disease. I also, I remember when 9-11 happened, we had several people not go to work Mm -hmm. or leave work that day, even though, I mean, we were in lower Alabama and this happened in New York. It was more of a, oh my gosh, I want to huddle my family around because we don't know the certainty of what, what the next shoe might be that drops. We don't know. This has never happened on our, on our soil before in our lifetime. Um, a lot of it also there's a there's a trigger effect that is emotional. It's almost innate to to try to gather your hens all at home and get everybody huddled up, um, in a in a panic, even regardless of it being a a, a disease or a pandemic.
3: I think fear is a big thing that, that really plays into the psyche uh, of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I we I work in a town that has about thirty five thousand people in it. And when we were watching the planes hit the towers, a lot of people were asking themselves, well, what's, what's the tallest tower we have in our town? And the tallest hmm. tower is, you know, five stories. <laughs> it's really not that big. and I don't think yeah. Al Qaeda would be, th- you know, flying a, a DC 9 into, into one of our towers here. But I think fear really plays into uh, a huge consideration in how we help prepare people. Mm -hmm. And that's where my love for crisis and risk communications comes in. Like I said, I have a a degree in film production. I love to help educate people. And so I kind of marry those two into what the Centers for Disease Control Calls, Crisis, and Emergency Risk Communications. And I teach that class for them and also as a consultant for a firm called Vantage Point in Indianapolis Um, because the, the psychology of a crisis really should play a big factor in not only how we as government agencies help prepare people or each other, um, mm-hmm. but also help just help them prepare for a disaster in general so we know how to interact with people on a better basis to help them back to health and safety as quick as possible.
2: Mm-hmm. Because it isn't always just a fact sheet of, of things that have to be taken care of. You have the, the reactions and actions of individuals that can differ and can affect the outcome of whether they prepare ahead of time or how they act afterwards, um, to your efforts as well in, in helping. So, cause some people get stubborn. No, I'm fine. And maybe you're not. You know, there, and other people are begging for help and they really don't have as much, have lost as much as maybe someone else. So, well, so tell me where wannabe prepper, the, the Facebook okay. and the wannabe prepper thing all kind of works into this for
3: you. Okay. So I went with my family to, uh Gatlinburg Tennessee and as a child as a kid my parents would we would frequent Gatlinburg every year in the fall and we would always mm-hmm. hike a mountain trail and there's this one particular uh, mountain called the Chimney Tops it was one of our favorites well it had been several years <clears throat> since I had you know, even set <laughs> foot on this trail so my family decided to go and I was you know about five or six years ago I was in in fairly decent shape, and then I did the worst sin I could. I took a, a month off from the gym. <laughs> and My 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 stamina and my, my uh, physique kind of went down the toilet a little bit. And so, long story short, I had a backpack, and I thought I had everything in it that I needed, water, had my survival knife, had a compass, had everything I really didn't need. And it wasn't probably about 20 minutes into it. I just couldn't hardly do it anymore. I could not hike this mm-hmm. trail like I used to. And I felt kind of like a, a dweeb because my son actually, my 13-year-old my son at the time, came down, and took my backpack, and carried my backpack for me. And so I uh-huh. had this mountaintop experience moment. I actually did get to the top, believe it or not. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I know. I wasn't any better for it, but I did get to the <laughs> top. And I had this aha moment, like, you're such a poser. Because you, you talk about carrying all this stuff and, and loving preparedness, but you couldn't even make it up halfway up this mountain without about about you know about keeling over. And so <laughs> I realized, you know, you're just kind of a wannabe. You, know, you talk a good game, but you're really just kind of a wannabe. And
2: uh-huh.
3: uh, Creek Stewart is a, a survivalist. He, he's on a
2: mm-hmm.
3: show called Fat Guys in the Woods, and um, he's also on the Weather Channel a lot uh, as a guest celebrity. And so he and I know each other, and he had mentioned once, and I did an interview with him once, and he said a lot of people have the gadgets and the equipment, but a lot of people don't practice. It has to be practice oriented. And so my idea was I don't have the skills. I have all the stuff like a lot of people do, but I don't always know how to use it. And so at the time I was in grad school, I thought, what a better way for me to use my background film production for me to film myself learning things uh, in a family-fun, nice. friendly way. Mm-hmm. Make fun of myself when I can. Uh, because there, you can go onto YouTube and you find any amount of videos on how to start fires or build shelters or whatever. Uh, everybody's an expert. And I'm proposing, yeah. I'm proposing that I am not an expert. <laughs> so... I just want people to learn with me. And so I think a lot of people may want to know a little bit more about preparedness, but they're just so overwhelmed by what's out there.
2: Oh, it's intimidating.
3: It is. It's I, a, it's
2: extreme. If I am not already ready and capable of starting my fire with char cloth, I must be a loser. Yeah. I just can't. I'm, I'm done. I'm doomed. Might and as well just, you know, and, not do anything.
3: And there's a million and one opinions on how to do this and a million and one <laughs> opinions on what kind of knife to carry. And so I'm trying to take that, that pressure off people, saying, I'm just one of you, and I want you just to learn with me. And you're going to be there with my mistakes and my successes, and I'm going to make fun of myself and never once take myself seriously. I just want people <laughs> to learn while I learn to do it. And That's so, awesome. Well, my, my hope is that people will follow along uh, mm-hmm. and watch some of the videos that I do. And I don't, I don't do as many as I used to because you know, cause I got out of grad school and then I start teaching like, a lot. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. my goal is to get back to it full full force and start recreating these, or creating these videos so people can just follow with me and I can follow with them. And so we can build this digital preparedness community together where we can exchange ideas and just, you know, have fun with the preparedness again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I completely agree with you on that part because it can be very daunting and depressing and you know you are just you're in panic mode too often and there is a point where you have to go I know I have today and that's really all I might know or this next breath really that's all you know and and so putting it into the proper perspective of you know sometimes it's it's a little goofy to think we're preparing this way because we don't know. And other times it's important, but it it doesn't ever need to weigh on someone as heavily as I think a lot of the marketing aspect of preparedness has been, has been leaned towards. That's one reason we actually started the magazine was because we just saw so much, you know, gloom, doom, hype, panic, and no one really should live in that state. It's good to have a healthy dose of understanding about what could happen. Yes. But living there is not, it's going to actually shorten lives and that's not a preparedness goal.
3: No. I, you know? I'm a big believer, you know, I live in a community where we have a lot of Amish. mm mm-hmm. And the Amish live in a way that a lot of people just pray and wish they could live. And for what's prepping for one person, it's just everyday life to the Amish. <laughs> right. And, you know, back in back in the 50s during the Red Scare, a lot of people were were prepared. A lot of people had emergency supplies already, just as a normal part of life. And I think we've gotten away from that. And I think here in the 21st century, we've stamped it, we've labeled it, and we've marketed uh, the whole preparedness movement as something it really shouldn't be. I think we've lost skills. I think we've lost perspective mm-hmm. on what it means to be properly prepared. But there, you know, I think really there's a there's a, a section of people and a time of life where that's just, just the way we live. And I think we've gotten away from that and kind of disconnected from each other and also from um, from the environment a lot just because mm-hmm. we live in a fast-paced society. And people, I don't think, slow down and enjoy, you know, you can call it prepping or you can call it just camping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think a lot of people kind of confuse yeah. the two. And... I'm just trying to get back to that. You know, it's what I do full time uh, as a career, but it's also something mm-hmm. I, I enjoy. I don't think, like you said, take it seriously as we always should. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, we're going to take a short little break, and then we're going to talk back uh, with you a little bit about, you know, pandemic preparedness. And here we just finished saying, don't be too panicked, <laughs> but there, that is a necessity. That's true. And we're also going to talk a little bit about what your formula is for true preparedness. So we'll be right
1: back with Mark in just a few moments.
2: Are you looking to have ducks, geese, chickens? Boy, do we have something to share with you. Stop by ranch-coop.com. These folks build some of the most beautiful handcrafted coops for small areas as well as the farm. They are so easy to put together. It took us less than an hour and they're shipped right to your door. Stop by ranch-coop.com. Wonderful people to deal with. Beautiful coops that you can use for backyard and homestead fowl. ranch-coop.com.
1: National Geographic traveled all the way to Boone, North Carolina, to select Turtle Island Preserve, a nonprofit outdoor discovery center and Appalachian Heritage Farm, as one of the 100 most enriching destinations in North America. For over 26 years, families have gained enrichment while discovering nature and, more importantly, themselves. In a world where digital screens and push buttons have replaced actual contact with nature, Turtle Island's beautiful campus and knowledgeable staff reconnect its guests to their natural roots. While camping out, visitors learn vast amounts in our non-electric, wood-fired community. Hundreds of hands-on classes are offered, such as beekeeping, woodworking, primitive skills and more, covering the gamut of early traditional living. A program for fathers and sons kicks off the summer season, followed by a five-day workshop for adults with renowned naturalist and director Eustace Conway. Turtle Island is a great destination for scouts, school field trips, homeschool, and special interest groups. Please visit our website and then visit our paradise. TurtleIslandPreserve.org or call
0: 828-265-2267. Your preparation station is on the air.
2: Thank you for listening through to our second half of the show. I'm here with Mark Linderman. We're, um, kind of getting philosophical here in the first half, <laughs> but it's okay because, you know, that you have to have the right fuel to, to propel your preparedness plans forward. And, you know, we've talked a good bit about making it positive, you know, dwelling on the things that are positive, um, whatever is noble, whatever is true, uh, something of value out of your prepping. I'm sure some of you might recognize some of what I just said. Um, there is, there is a positive side to prepping, but the, the truth is there's a negative aspect in, well, you know, just about everything. So, so being aware of it, not putting your head in the sand, um, helps you prepare more, more positively as well. So we want to talk for a second about pandemic preparedness. Pandemic sounds so, um, you know, apocalyptic end of end of all days uh, for some people, and then for others, it's just a part of, of something that may come to you know that they need yes. to prepare for. So, Mark, what's your take on pandemic preparedness?
3: Well, we live in a pandemic era right now with HIV/AIDS. Uh, a pandemic, in essence, is just a disease that has spread to worldwide. That's all it is. It's sustainable. There's not necessarily a cure for it right away. Uh, and it can spread easily from person to person. And that fits HIV, AIDS to a T. Uh, it is everywhere in this world. There is no cure for it as of today, and it spreads very easily if people don't take the proper precautions with it. And so we see a lot of that as a definition of a pandemic. Now, the apocalyptic things that we, that we look at is pandemic influenza, mostly. There have been other pandemics in the world um, throughout history, uh, Black Death Plague being one of them, which wiped out half of Mm -hmm. Europe at the time and killed about 50 million people in a matter of several years. Uh, But the worst one on record is the 1918 Spanish influenza. And Mm -hmm. that happened when, it actually originated uh, or started spread in Kansas uh, at a... um, army barracks and spread out from there. And so within a year and a half, the the, the Spanish flu influenza killed anywhere an estimated 50 to 100 million people in, like I said, in a year and a half. And it didn't didn't kill them in a way that we we would look at normal flu today. It was violent, it was quick, and it was gruesome. And so those are the apocalyptic apocalyptic, uh, images that we receive or think about when we think Mm -hmm. of of pandemics. Uh, and those are the things that really keep people like me up at night, uh, thinking <laughs> about what could be. And, and the scary thing is, you know, several years ago, <clears throat> the CDC came out and said there's this in- influenza virus circulating in Asia, currently called H5N1. And mm-hmm. it's still there. It's highly pathogenic. It's highly... Um, it's a high mortality rate. If someone does get it, uh, 50 to 60% of them will actually will die from, from this flu. Now, the good thing for us right now is it does not transmit easily between person to person. When people get it, they usually get it from, from their poultry flocks. Because a lot of people in, in Asia, southern Asia specifically, live with their birds. Uh, it, a lot of times it's, it's their form of pet sometimes. Hmm. So as of right now, it does not transmit easily between human to human. If it did, if it did mutate, we would have a pandemic of greater value than the 1918 pandemic probably. So it might have killed 50 to 100 million people back then, could kill up to 350 million people worldwide today. And that's a scary thing for us to actually think about. Mm -hmm. And it's not just... A threat to our health system it's a threat to society period because if you think about it you know again i, I said you know, possibly 50 percent of the workforce could be depleted whether they're sick or afraid or home with their loved ones uh, you could look at something greater than that it could be a society stopper now i really believe that the american society can bounce back from something like that but we would take a big hit as far as how we function uh in culture, in society, and just in normal family life. It would change a, it would change the landscape of the world. And so we try to help prevent I don't know if you can prevent, but help at least mitigate to some extent the effects that could have. And so there's a lot of people watching these different viruses uh circulating in, in Southeast Asia. Or elsewhere in the world, SARS was an example where a lot of people were scared that that could have d- uh, developed into a pandemic because there's still no cure to SARS. It just burned out. And so that's, those are the things that, that we look at a lot. Um, bioterrorism is another example. Uh, bioterrorism is not as big of a force as it used to be, but still present. We look at, uh, Syria and their use of chemical weapons there. We look at North Korea, where Kim Jong-un supposedly um, assassinated his brother-in-law with VX curve agents. We look at <clears throat> um, what happened when the Soviet Union broke up, whose anthrax program actually dwarfed the United States. And so in this world, there are several components of anthrax still in the black market. And not only the anthrax is missing, the scientists who helped develop it are missing as well. So what happens when these Hmm. scientists need to make a buck and put their services out on the black market? Those are still valid concerns that we still have today. Uh, And again, those are the things that we plan for on a daily basis with our partners.
2: Right. And I'm going (laughs) to... Please excuse how this is going to sound, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. I know a lot of preppers have a distrust for yep. what might be put out for by FEMA, CBC, government, whatever. There are a section of preppers that have that. It would behoove them to at least pay attention and because there is no way without paying attention to what is being said, what is being declared and taught, and to the whole general public, from FEMA, from the CDC, from these, uh, um, the World Health Organization. Don't ignore these people just because you may have some conspiracy theory in your own head. If you if you don't pay attention to this, you are going to be out of the know and, and caught unaware. Well, I'm why? I'm not. You know, I'm well, not saying, you know, I think everything needs to be tested and everything needs to be, um, you know, checked carefully, yes. But that, that doesn't mean ignore uh, something because you have distrust. Well, I and think a lot of
3: people, they, they put a level on on state, federal, local governments. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes we've gotten it wrong. Uh, what I who, think, who hasn't, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So I think, and this is one of the things I teach uh, for the CDC, I think there needs to be a transparent attitude with the government just to say, you know what, we got it wrong. And I think people are more willing to forgive the government if the government just steps up and says, we got it wrong, this is what we really need to do and work with us to try to come Mm -hmm. up with the best solution. I think when government tries to hide things, It it puts us in a really bad light as far as whether people think we're competent enough or whether they're trying to hide something. Um, Government does a good job, uh, as good of a job as it can, depending on the level of government. Right. Uh, You know, obviously, the smaller the government, the quicker we respond. And the larger the the level, it's much harder uh, to respond Mm -hmm. as quick as people would want. Just take, for example, the the hurricanes that hit the southern states right now in Puerto Rico. Look right. at the effort in Puerto Rico right now for, especially the U.S. government, to respond and bring that civilization back uh, to vibrancy. It's difficult. It's a huge ordeal. Uh, I think people look at things like Hurricane Katrina, and mm-hmm. the government botched that one up. There's there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. The government... Yep. really. Did botch that up, but it also goes into this. What I try to to tell people what true preparedness really is, mm-hmm. and I think if for me, there's three pillars of it, three interconnecting pillars. So one is community preparedness. Communities ought know enough about themselves to help themselves. And the right. second pillar of that is personal survival or personal or individual preparedness people should know enough about themselves or their families to sustain themselves and that third pillar is government um, the government has its role and has its function in preparedness and preparedness preparedness true preparedness has to entail all three of those and for the survivalist who think they live on their own this is why I like to tell them God did not create us to be isolationists. he created us as communal beings Mm-hmm. Where we live and depend and work with each other for the greater good. And so uh, there's there's a TV show I think it's on Discovery called Alone, where people it's a game show yeah. kind of yeah people try to live as long as they can in the wilderness with with very little. And typically, those people go stark raving mad. <laughs> there's yeah. a reason for that. It's because that's <laughs> exactly. not how we were created. You know, God did not create us to live alone. He created us to be with each other. Right. So we need each other. But I think that true preparedness has to entail all three of those pillars government, community, and self. And you yeah. take one of those out of the equation, you're you're gonna be in a mess.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that that um a lot of the <clears throat> bad labeling came from people who who were loud enough to say, Well, I'm just gonna you know, just me. I'm going to hold up me in my bunker and, you know, protect myself and just worry about myself. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is if you're going to be one of those people that shoots first, asks questions later, yeah. or what are you going to do if that person walking up your driveway was the one bringing you the cure? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a community thing. We are not, we have none of us are, can operate in a bubble. Now, what makes us think we can do that in a, in a pandemic or just a long-term um, fallout effect. We can't. We have to figure out those things now. You know, if you want to mitigate it because you'd prefer to be alone, that's fine. You probably should be, but you're not going to be able to stay that way. No, there's no way. Um, you know, you are eventually going to either be reached out to by someone who, who wants to care for you uh-huh. Or you're going to need to reach out because you've reached the limit of your skill set, the limit of your supplies, the limit of your sanity. You know, that being alone is not the way to approach preparedness. I, I love your three pillars of true preparedness, community, government, personal. They, they, it's a, it's a ripple out and a trickle down effect. Both. It has to work symbiotically all three together. It's, the three-legged stool will stand. Two-legged, not so much.
3: Exactly. And you know? when we look at pandemic planning, you know, the, the push is that the government's going to come in and save you. And that's not necessarily the case, because if you look at it, most disasters are isolated, and the government can come in and help. But in a mm-hmm. pandemic, everybody's affected on every level. Mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. is just as affected as Richmond, Indiana, or my hometown with 1,200 people in it. And so everybody's going to be dealing with the same problem all at once. So the government might get you the vaccine, but they're not always going to be able to get the supplies and everything else because they're dealing with it on another level outside of your community. Mm-hmm. So that's where that community and individual preparedness comes in. You know, we have to be able to take care of ourselves here in our county as a county government, but also teach people how to take care of themselves when we ourselves can't get to them in a timely fashion as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Case in point, when H1N1 happened, the the CDC shipped uh, H1N1 vaccines to the Indiana State Department of Health, which then shipped them to to local health departments. But we didn't get massive shipments all at once. Uh, Mm -hmm. So our first day when we had uh, the vaccine, we had 500 people or more wrapped around our our city block ready to get the vaccine. We had 120 vaccines the first day. (laughs)
2: Wow. Oh, my.
3: And so a lot of people are mad, uh, and and rightfully so. But to think that government is the answer is a mistake. To think that we ourselves as individuals are the answer is a mistake. And to think that our communities are the only people who can build us up is also a mistake. So, again, Mm -hmm. you've got this equation where you take out one aspect of it. The equation doesn't work. You must have all three. And, again, that means we had to have a little faith in ourselves and in our, in our government and communities to allow that to work because when we right. lose faith in that and again, faith is one of those things that God has uh, implemented in us and put into our DNA. We had to have faith in something uh, in, in a mm-hmm. disaster. We had to have some faith that people will be there to help us, but we also need to know how to help ourselves a little bit too. Right.
2: Hope is uh, um one of those things that it doesn't even matter if <laughs> it's false hope. Hope is just hope. Yes. You know, even if if you have misgivings or questions about, you know, well, will this be helpful? You might as well grasp for it and, and give it a go because it's better than not not giving um, credence and hope into it in, in the first place.
3: I think... Especially um,
2: in this situation.
3: Well, one of the things that I teach people uh, in my classes is that people will always either point a finger at god or embrace god one of the one of those two things is going to happen uh at some some level or another mm-hmm. and so you're right there's i can be upset that my home has been destroyed uh or my community is, is leveled or i can be thankful that i still have the people there to help me through it yep. uh, and that god has put those people in there in, in that place too so we can work together on something and so, and, I, and be honest, you know, I, I've, I've known Christ for 20 years of my life, and I've been on both sides of that coin. So, yeah. you know, it is a relationship, and relationships have their, have their ups and downs. And mm-hmm. so I can, I dig that. I understand that mentality on both sides that goes back yeah. to hope.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Well, Mark, I have really enjoyed our time together, and I'm sorry that it's actually coming to an end. But we do need to tie it up so that others can can. Um you know, kind of get on with their day. And I'm hoping <laughs> that everyone has stayed through the entire show and gotten to know Mark Linderman better. Um, if you want to connect with him, each of the um, links on the show page, both his Facebook, his YouTube, and his Twitter, you can connect with Mark, learn more. And I hope you'll take his advice and really dig into what your community and then pay attention to what the government also has to offer as you prepare your personal preparedness plan. So, um, I appreciate you being on today. I Thank you so very much. Thank you. And hopefully we'll do it again soon.
3: I hope so, cause it's been fun.
2: Yeah, it has. Thanks so much. Thank this is Donna signing off, and remember, be prepared, but be encouraged and enjoy the journey. God bless, and we'll talk with you again soon.
0: This has been another episode of Your Preparation Station with Donna Miller. We would love to hear from you. Please connect with us at yourpreparationstation.com and on Facebook. Tune in again next time for another encouraging episode. Until then, keep growing and finding joy in the journey.
1: Tune in again soon. This is Your Preparation Station, speaking hope. Not hype and facts, not fear. Preparedness grounded in truth.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?